Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 31, The Battle of Hogwarts. The enchanted ceiling of the great hall was dark and scattered with stars. And below it, the four long house tables were lined with disheveled students, some in traveling cloaks, others in dressing gowns. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Caspar Tekile. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Vanessa, this week we're doing something a little different. We have read every chapter in one episode for like four and a half years, and then we read chapter 31. We're like, there is too much that happens in this chapter. It deserves at least two episodes. So what we're going to do is we're going to read and talk about chapter 31, part one in this episode, all the way up to Harry rejoining Ron and Hermione. And then in our next episode, we'll carry on from there through the great fire of the requirement room and up to a very sad final moment. Can you imagine trying to talk about Pansy Parkinson and Fred dying all in one episode. Impossible. Too much, I say. Too much. A big shout out to a local group of ours that meets in Toronto, Canada. Pigwidgeon and a Peck of Errols, led by Shannon Halliwell McDonald. I love this local group name. I feel like we can morph into like local group slash band names pretty soon. So big up to you, Pigwidgeon and the Pack of Errols. I hope you guys have a great time getting together locally, virtually. And if you want to join a local group, join the conversation. Go to harrypottersacredtext.com and click on local groups. Casper, did you not hear that Pigwidgeon and a Pack of Errols is touring with Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band? <laughs> it's like happening. 
So today we are lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Ali Bain, who is an EDD, which we have decided is the most important kind of doctor. She is a middle school teacher, a mom, and most importantly for today, the co-host of Herstory on the Rocks, a fantastic podcast that if you are going to try it for the very first time, you should look for Vanessa Zoltan, Herstory <laughs> on the Rocks, because it's like one of your top 10 episodes, I would say. It's the best one we ever recorded. I mean. And I didn't want to say that, but since you said that. And today, Allie is going to tell us a story on the theme of survival. Allie. First, I want to say that if sexual assault makes you uncomfortable, please feel free to skip ahead a little bit. I will not be talking about it in grave detail, but it is a piece of this story on survival. I am one of four siblings, and as you can imagine, my parents were always extremely busy and dividing up their time between us the best they could. However, in the mid to late 90s, I got about two hours alone each week with my mother. On Friday nights, my two brothers would go to Boy Scouts with my dad and my younger sister would go to bed. On these Friday evenings, my mom and I would have what I like to call girl time, which mostly consisted of us sorting and folding laundry while we watched TV and talked. We were also joined every week by two friends, Q Downs and Barbara Walters. And if you don't know, these were the co-hosts of an excellent television production called 2020, where they covered some really difficult stories. My mom used this as a way to talk about really uncomfortable things with her preteen daughter. She would say things like, you know, Allie, you should never go to the bar alone. And if someone tries to abduct you, you should be really loud so everyone around you knows what's happening. On one particular evening, Barbara Walters was interviewing some sexual assault survivors about how this type of crime is often underreported. The women and men on the program were sitting in their living rooms, but pictures kept flashing up on the screens of them, and they looked pretty beat up. They had black eyes and casts, etc. My mom said, Allie, you know, if something like that ever happens to you, you need to tell us. What I haven't told you is that during this same period in my life, it was from the years between 8 and 12 for me, I unfortunately, like many other young people around the world, was sexually assaulted by a member of my extended family on multiple occasions. I was never hospitalized and didn't have any physical wounds or bruises, so I looked at my mom and back at the TV and thought those sexual assault survivors don't look like me. Furthermore, they're just surviving and I'm living. And as a child, I saw that as very different and therefore let my abuse go on for another couple of years. I've never been secretive about what happened to me. I've told my friends and my husband and my children, but I've never described myself as a survivor. It wasn't until the Me Too movement began in 2016 that all the important people in my life, friends, family, and everyone on Twitter started referring to women like me as survivors. And I initially had a really deep aversion to the word. People survive wars. They survive cancer. They survive earthquakes. I am not a survivor. I am a liver. I'm living. And it took me until about my 12th rereading of Deathly Hollows, as well as years of personal growth, to understand survivor as something other than an antonym to death. Ironically, it was through a character in the story that we perceive as dead. 
Helena Ravenclaw is in prominence in this chapter, and she tells us how she lost her life at the hands of a man who came looking to bring her back to her family and who had formally loved her so far as to open up her robes and show her stab wounds. And when we start to analyze this story, we realize that much like other people who've been assaulted, Helena knows the person who assaulted her, and she has to live in close proximity to him for the remainder of her literal existence. Every school feast, every death day party, she's in the room with the Baron. Every corridor she walks down, he could literally pop through the walls. She cannot even lock the doors to get away from him. And yet, unlike the other ghosts, Helena seems to grow and learn in her death. She disassociates her death self from her life self, saying, when I was alive, I was Helena Ravenclaw. And in these novels, we read as she glides through the halls and reads in the back of the library, and we find out that she learned to trust again and then feel betrayed by Tom Riddle, and then even opens herself up to Harry in a moment of desperate need. I think we need to look at Helena and use her story to challenge the idea of survival as avoiding imminent death and instead think of it as living through and growing despite your circumstances. And that doesn't mean everyone has to write a book about their trauma or start a Me Too movement. It could just mean getting through Monday. That is surviving. It isn't comparing your surviving to escaping death, but layering your surviving on top of the life you're living. Ali, first of all, I just want to acknowledge that you shared something really vulnerable about yourself. And I know that you mentioned that you've never really held this as a secret. But I also know that even if you're brave in a story, it can still be difficult to tell it. And so I just want to thank you for sharing it. Ali, I'm suddenly also thinking about the very structure of this book that, you know, we've been working towards this showdown, right? This this killing of the Horcruxes, this battle between Harry and Voldemort, and we're getting that. And in some ways you would expect the book to finish there, but it doesn't. And there's always been lots of conversations about those final few pages, right, 19 years later. And your story is really helping me see that in a different way because it's saying in a way, or we can read it as saying that actually what to focus on is that normal life. It's parents dropping off their kids at a train station on the way to school. Like, the survival that we're seeing is one of living and is one of, I don't want to say normalcy, but but something that feels very aligned with what you're helping us see Helena Ravenclaw being able to do as well and what, what you've done. And I mean, the whole, the whole story hinges on the true hero, right, Narcissa, and really caring that her son's mm. alive. And I know mm. we can hate her as much as we want because, I mean, she is a neo-Nazi. But her love of survival and and Harry's love of survival is really what saves this story. It's how he ends up, quote, surviving. Right. And that we see Malfoy, you know, as an adult, finding a way to live his life that isn't totally wrapped up in who his father was, who his mother was, and who he was even as a, as a young person. So, I yeah, I love that. Yeah, and we see that survival is going to look different for everyone. We know that the Bloody Baron is punishing himself. And, you know, Helena is fine with it. She says, as he should, because she has spite. And I love that in her. But he also is trying to learn to survive with what he did, because we know he takes his own life being angry at himself. 
And right, this again, just like seems like a major systems failure. This ghost should not be allowed to live in the same castle as his victim, right? And I think the last thing we need is someone like constantly saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and just triggering her. Like he should be separated. And if he lived somewhere else, I would like to think that he would have eventually taken off those chains, right? Like, I don't think people should be punished in perpetuity. No. Ali, thank you so much for sharing your story, for for pointing to this character that we could have missed, you know, or at least an element of her story that I know I could have missed. And I just so appreciate your teaching, your wonderful humanness in the world and, and for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank yes, you thank so you. much for having me. Good luck with your last couple of chapters. It's so exciting. Oh, I can't believe it. I know. <laughs> So Casper, I'm actually nervous about the fact that we decided to split this baby in half and how I will recap only half a baby. It's a real King Solomon situation. I know, (laughs) but I can do it. I can do it. I can do anything. Anything you can do, I can do better. (laughs) Count me in. Three, two, one, go. So McGonagall's like, this is what we're going to do. And Pansy Parkinson is like, Harry Potter's right over there. And then the Hufflepuffs are like, are they? And McGonagall's like, Slytherin's out. And Kingsley's like, here's the battle plan. And then McGonagall's like, Harry, aren't you supposed to be looking for something? And he's like, oh, yeah. But we're running Hermione. And then he goes and he talks to the Grey Lady. And the Grey Lady's like, diadem. Voldemort tricked it out of me. And and then Harry's like, oh, my God, I have to look for it. I know where it is. And then he goes near the room of requirement. And Hagrid gets pushed through the window. And he's like, but really, we're running Hermione. Wow. Anything I can do, you can do better? (laughs) I fully retract my previous statement. (laughs) (laughs) On your mark, get set, go. Okay, so the Battle of Hogwarts is about to begin. Suddenly loudspeakers have been installed and Voldemort is telling everyone, "Uh, give me Harry Potter by midnight. Um, And then Harry's like, oh yeah, I have to find this Horcrux. And he goes running around. And then he figures out he has to talk to um, the Grey Lady because the Red, someone else told him like that it's her. And then she's like, oh, I I was... um, Rowena's daughter I stole the diadem uh, great shame but I've told this to someone else and Harry's like oh my god it's Voldemort and then Harry's like ah it's an Albanian holiday brochure because that's where the thing was and that's why he was in Albania it's now a pilgrimage site that tree with the hollow in it (laughs) I love it it's the tree that held the diadem it's like a blessing tree so Casper I'm gonna make a plea that I think we should start at the beginning of the chapter on this theme of survival. All right. What, what do you want to point to? The moment that we have to talk about, right, is Pansy Parkinson. Voldemort makes this announcement. We're going to attack the castle. A lot of you are going to die unless you hand me Harry Potter. And you have to do that by midnight. And Harry is walking through the Great Hall when this happens. And Pansy is, looks and goes like, he's there. Someone take him. Let's turn him over. And... I'm just wondering what you think, because I think that there are at least two possible ways to read this moment. And one is just the tactical one of like, okay, the monster wants Harry Potter. Let's feed the monster Harry Potter. And while he's eating Harry Potter, we can all run away. But the other is, I think he's going to be the new leader. And so I'm switching over my allegiance to him now. And I am doing this not just for the immediate future, but for the long term future. This is the new order of things. Voldemort wants, Voldemort gets. And then it's not about her like immediate physical survival, but it's also about survival in terms of thriving in the new order. 
I asked myself exactly the same question when I was reading the text. And I think actually I have an answer, which is that because she says somebody grab him, it's actually not about her own glory, right? Like she's not going in as the first soldier over the wall. Like she's saying like somebody grab him, like someone deal with this. So I really think she's she's stressed about her own survival. And I think in those moments, she sees a way out and she's like, guys, why are we making this complicated? It's hundreds of us or it's one of him. Don't make this hard. Now, do we think that's okay? It's a different conversation. But I think it's pretty clear that she's really doing this not for glory, but just for her own safety. Right. I mean, the sort of like perennial solution to the trolley problem of do you kill some one person who you know in order to avoid killing, let's say, five people who you don't know. Right. The ethicist says you kill the person you know, like greater good. you got to save as many people as possible. And obviously different ethics and different points of view have different views on this. But the utilitarian ideal is what Pansy is inadvertently, in my opinion, <laughs> but is what she's inadvertently advocating for. She's She thinks that this is going to create the least amount of harm. And then, of course, we could argue, but it won't, because then you will have a dictator in charge of your new world. But But she is just advocating for like one person over all of us. Right. And I feel like she hasn't seen Little Shop of Horrors because, as you said, like it's feed the monster. But we know that once you feed the monster one, the monster are only going to want more. So I think you're perfectly right to point to the fact that this is actually very different from a trolley problem. Vanessa, I thought when you said let's start at the beginning that we were going to start all the way at the beginning because literally in the first paragraph, we have this sentence, here and there shone the pearly white figures of the school ghosts. And so this relates totally with what Ali was saying, like that these ghost figures that are so part and parcel of the Hogwarts scenery play a really important role in this chapter and I think give us some really important insights on the theme of survival. And what interested me in them from this sentence onward was this in-between presence that they have when we think about survival, because obviously their life has ended, but their death is still present. You know, and and they are emotionally rich ghosts. Nick is surprised. He's offended. He describes the gray lady as the young woman. And I guess I wanted to think about just even the fact of a ghost in the Hogwarts world in this theme of survival, because what has survived? It's not their physical body. It is, to some extent, their desires. Like, the Grey Lady has plenty to say about the Red Baron. She hasn't forgiven him, right? Like, there's still a lot of emotion there. Help me help me in thinking about what about them has survived. Well, I'm going to answer your question with by answering the opposite question, which is what about them has died? Ooh, I like that. Because so much of them has survived. Like, they're here. You can talk to them. You can pick their brains. They can tell you stories. You know, we Helena Ravenclaw goes to class, right? Like, they can continue to learn. But what doesn't survive, I think, in addition to their corporal forms and their ability to enjoy things like food and enjoy having a body, including all the pain of having a body, is there? it seems as though their ability to move mm. is very limited, mm. which is one of the rings of hell. The people who were born before Christ and therefore could not be true believers in Dante's first ring of hell, so people including Odysseus, Their punishment is that they are stuck. They can't journey. They can't go elsewhere. And so maybe the difference is like they do survive, but they aren't given the permission to thrive, to like take that cliche, because I think that you can choose to stay and thrive. But if you are stuck somewhere, 
I really think that thriving is, if not entirely impossible, nearly impossible, at least a version that thriving is possible while you're stuck is not coming to mind for me right now. You know, and I think we see this exactly with the gray lady and the bloody baron, right? I think that he is stuck with the worst thing he ever did. And she is stuck having to constantly be confronted with this trauma in a re-traumatizing way, right? Like she has to live with the man who murdered her. And so I think that the thing that doesn't survive with ghosts is exactly that, that ability to move on, that ability to leave if leaving is what you need to do. Yeah, that makes so much sense to me. And it, it also explains that it's their rich emotional lives actually that is the thing that's most present. The yearnings, right? If we think about moaning myrtle, the anger, or even just like the social awkwardness, right? Like Nearly Headless Nick so wants to be part of these clubs, right? Like th that that's the bit of them that actually survives. That makes a lot of sense to me. And again, it survives, but like all it does is survive. Right. It seems as though they've been having these same fights for decades, if not centuries, Right. Like Nick is always going to want to be a part of the headless hunt and he is never going to be part of the headless hunt. And Helena is always going to wish that the bloody Baron lived elsewhere. And the bloody Baron is always going to wear the chains of his guilt. And it's just not going to change. It's just not going to change. And that is, you know, in Judaism, they say that you're supposed to prolong life, but not prolong death. Mm. And the idea with that is that if you all you are doing is surviving then you're prolonging death. But if something other than just surviving is happening, then you're prolonging life. And these ghosts, I think all they're doing is surviving. Yeah, that makes me think about, even on a biological level, the sense of the, the cells that we're made of cannot live again until we die. <laughs> so that, that sense of like death being necessary for new life to happen at some level, even poetically. And the way in which these ghosts, as you said, the stuckness of them seems really true to me. Sometimes we have to let things end in order for new things to begin. And I, and I feel like I'm starting to wonder if these ghosts actually want to be there or if they're, if they're somehow being held by something else. I'd never thought about them that way before. And I, I think the other thing about survival is that the reason survival matters is because we are grateful that the person can grow and change. That's why I'm glad that Pansy Parkinson does survive, right? Because otherwise she would be frozen in time where the last thing she did was like be willing to sacrifice somebody for her own safety. And because she survives, I have this hope that she will move on and change and is a changeable person. And the necessary condition for that is survival. And so I think survival is just necessary, but insufficient, right? Mm. And the ghosts just have the necessary, but they don't have enough of the other things in their lives that they need in order to have lives that uh, certainly not a life that I would want to live. I'm really struck by that idea of you know, Brian Stevenson talks about none of us are the worst things that we've ever done. We're not only that. And so to point to Pansy in that moment and be like, that's not the only thing that she is or will be. I mean, there's plenty of other bad things that she's done by this point. So I, I don't want to read her too generously. But we see other characters doing honestly not dissimilar things. Zachariah Smith, once the students are being evacuated, we see him. And at this point, he's, you know, a seventh year student 
pushing aside first years in order to get out first. So there's, a, again, one could say an ugliness or a selfishness, yes, but also a clearly a, a great will to survive and a willingness to sacrifice little kids to get out of the door quickly. But he's more than that, you know, and I hope we'll regret that moment to some extent. I mean, it's why I always get really annoyed when people call my grandparents heroes when all they know about my grandparents is that they were survivors, right? I think my grandparents, you know, my understanding of my grandparents, my limited understanding of their experiences in the war, in my opinion, they did many things that were quite heroic. But people will say that to me when all they know is that they survived. And I'm like, you don't know. They could have pushed first years out of the way. We want to celebrate the people who happen to make it through. And yeah, there's Zachariah Smith. And like Ernie McMillan is the actual hero. Right. But to further complicate it, right? So Ernie McMillan steps up. He's the first person who's like, I don't want to evacuate. I want to stay and fight. However, if he had died in book two, if the heir of Slytherin had killed him, he would have died in a moment in which he was baselessly accusing someone, you know, and the thing we would have remembered him for was accusing Harry of being the heir of Slytherin when he wasn't. And so thank God Ernie McMillan survived in order to be the hero that we get to see him. So it's, again, this just necessary but insufficient thing where... Surviving is not enough, and surviving is the thing that gives us a chance to be in a way that matters or to grow. When I think about the word survival, I think back to my climate activism days, because in 2008, when I was one of the young people who was at the UN negotiations, we were led by a group of young people who really took on this theme of survival is not negotiable. And the focus of that phrase was really around small island states. So as sea levels are rising, small island states will literally disappear. And so in that case, when survival is under threat, I feel like sometimes you can't even think about the thriving that should follow surviving. Like at that point, it's just about survival. And so that phrase became so important of survival is not negotiable. And it's it's something that I think about for everyone in the battle who hasn't chosen to be there. I mean, we're looking at the order, we're looking at the DA, we're even looking at the Death Eaters who have all chosen to be there. And it is, you know, it is those first years. And honestly, it is it is also Zachariah Smith who are like, yeah, my survival is not negotiable. I'm just going to do what it takes. And there's a, an ugliness and a clarity in that, which I, I really do empathize with. I mean, a, way, a generous way to read Zachariah Smith is that he's in this moment is like, I'm not done, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't right. like the things I've done so far and I am not done. And so I am getting out of here. The pushing of the children out of the way Maybe. in order <laughs> to get out, like, it's really hard, right? Yeah. Let me take you somewhere else in the text where I think similar themes are at play, which is, as you said in your recap, Hagrid arrives on like airmail delivery thanks to Grop through a window. And it's it's actually a two for one offer because Fang comes with him. So they arrive in this corridor and they're like, oh, here's Harry. How convenient and awesome. And so there's this little moment where, where Hagrid's like, where are we going? And Harry's like, I have no idea. So they're like running through the corridors and then this vase explodes or something happens and it terrifies Fang and Fang starts running in the opposite direction. And this really struck me reading it this time because we have seen Hagrid be protective in a nearly maternal way of Harry from the very, very beginning of book one. So when Fang runs away, I kind of expected Hagrid to stay with Harry, but he doesn't. 
he follows Fang. And I wasn't sure whether this was about Harry's more able to defend himself, so he's going to protect Fang. Whether he was like, oh, Fang's going to be helpful in the battle if I can direct him, so I need to go get him. <laughs> Strategy. It was definitely a calm, cool, and collected strategic <laughs> choice that Hagrid was making. I'm curious, like, what do you make of that moment? Is there a similar kind of choosing his own loved one in Fang over the cause? Like, I'm, I'm just curious what you make of this moment in terms of survival. So Harry, in the moment that you point us to before Hagrid gets sort of like pushed through the window by Grot, Harry keeps losing sight of the mission. He's doing some good work. But the thing that he just keeps saying is, where are Ron and Hermione, Mm. right? Where are Ron and Hermione? And the DA, the Order of the Phoenix, all of Hufflepuff, all of Ravenclaw, all of Gryffindor are like, we're here to fight. And he's like, super cute. Where are Ron and Hermione? (laughs) And it is this admission that he's no longer just himself. He's a part of this trio and he can't do things without them. It's that beautiful line between community and codependency, right? Mm. Where, and again, he makes progress. He talks to the gray lady. He gets information out of her. Maybe she wouldn't have even shared it if Ron and Hermione were there. Right. But, and then I think the same thing with Hagrid, right? It's like a primary circle and a secondary circle. And at the end of the day, Hagrid's been stuck in the cave with Fang. He wasn't invited to be on the road with Harry, Ron, and Hermione. And I think that these are really complex relational ecosystems. Part of it was that Dumbledore said, only tell Ron and Hermione. If Dumbledore had said, you can tell Ron, Hermione, and Hagrid, like maybe Hagrid would have been on the road with them, with Fang. And then maybe there would have been a totally different dynamic at play here. But the creature whose survival matters most to Hagrid because its survival impacts his ability to survive his fang. Yeah. Well, and as long as he's been looking after Harry, he's also been looking after magical creatures, right? Like I'm suddenly seeing that connection as well, that actually this is very obvious for Hagrid is to protect the vulnerable creature. That's always been his his first love in some way. Yeah. Did you just inadvertently call dogs a magical creature? <gasps> it's a very special, unique case. <laughs> I think Fang is just a dog, dude. <laughs> Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place. So you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. 
Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. So, Casper, the thing that we have to talk about is the fact that not a single Slytherin sort of stays, at least not that we see. So McGonagall does, you know, this thing where it's Pansy is like grab Harry and then all the other houses rise and are like, absolutely not. And McGonagall takes this moment to de-escalate and is like, thank you, Pansy, for volunteering. Lead all the Slytherins out. All heads of house, lead all of your houses out. Everybody get the heck out. And then Ernie McMillan is like, we want to stay and fight. Whatever. But what we don't hear about is that a single Slytherin chooses to stay and fight on behalf of Hogwarts, on behalf of the cause of Harry. And the Slytherins can't stay, right? How loud would you have to scream, no, no, I want to stay without being sort of like pulled in this river of people who are moving toward the exit? Also, I don't think the Gryffindors, Hufflepuffs, or Ravenclaws would believe that person. They'd be like, no, please leave. You might be a spy for the other side. You're going to stab me when I'm not looking, right? Like, I think so much distrust and so much separation has been built this moment where, as far as we know, not a single Slytherin stays is not the fault of individual Slytherins. This is just the house system failing again. I think where I'm landing with the house system is that it is not inherently bad to look at things separately, to have the houses, but that the identity of the houses can never supersede the identity of Hogwarts. And that's what's gone wrong, is that the division has gone so far that the whole cannot hold, that there isn't this all surrounding identity that everyone can be part of. But but what's most interesting to me is the way in which the division within Hogwarts is echoed later with the division within the Death Eaters. I, I guess it points to the fact that like this vision of unity from the outside always holds within it way more complexity and distinguishing ideas and priorities. Yeah. So I, I do think whatever comes afterwards in terms of the future of Hogwarts, there has to be a systematic rethink about how the how the houses operate. You know, is it appropriate that everything is bound by the houses, classes, sports, the physical locations within the castle? That they're set to constantly compete against each other. Exactly. Maybe there's a way of being in houses, but to enable collaboration more, or that there are, you know, some things that are bound by a different set of markers, right? Maybe how bad you are at remembering the thing that your rememberer is reminding you of. I don't know, but we need a competing system of organization next to the house system for Hogwarts to flourish in the future. So Casper, what you said about the Death Eaters also being divided takes me to sort of the end of where we're going to end our reading, Yeah, which is this like brief moment between Aberforth and Harry. So yes. Harry is outside the room of requirement And Aberforth is like, 
a million people just exited through my bar. And Harry's like, yeah, sorry, I think we're done. And number fourth is like, no, 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 you dummy dumb strategy, please. You should have held on to some Slytherins. These are children of Death Eaters. Like you could have used them <laughs> as hostages to negotiate. And Harry looks at Aberforth and just says, in my opinion, one of the most naive things that Harry Potter ever says, which is your brother never would have done that. <laughs> and I'm like, kid, you are a hostage that Dumbledore created and kept alive for as long as possible so you could be the last word. Like, what are you talking about? Dumbledore absolutely would have exploited children for political gain. And not only that, it potentially would have saved lives, right? Like, if they had held on to some Slytherin kids, that might have ended this battle. The Death Eaters might have said, hey, Voldemort, love you lots, not risking my own children. Right. Like, is that strategy, would that strategy have been immoral? Are child soldiers and hostages immoral? Whether it's right or wrong, I think it's certainly good strategy. I mean, we are going to see the whole book turn on exactly this when Narcissa decides that she will disobey Voldemort to his face in order to try and protect her son. Now, would that be changed if she knew that someone was holding him hostage, right? That makes the lines of good and evil really clear for her in a way that in the actual context later in the book, it's going to be more murky. But I definitely don't blame Aberforth. Yeah, I mean, I think Casper, it's like at least some sort of projection that Harry is doing, right? Where he's saying, my instinct is that that feels gross. It would feel gross to keep children here against their will in a dangerous situation. And anything that I think is good, I'm going to, in my gut, feel that Albus would think and do that. And I think part of that is that Harry hasn't had his heart completely broken by Albus yet. He hasn't realized that he's a Horcrux. So he's still at a moment in the text where he doesn't realize the extent to which he is going to have to be destroyed. So I don't think that he's seen sort of how willing Dumbledore is to sacrifice a child yet. Yeah. Vanessa, we're continuing with Lectio Divina for our sacred reading practice. And I've chosen a sentence at random. Let me read it for you. Well, you weren't the first person Riddle wormed things out of, Harry muttered. Well, you weren't the first person Riddle wormed things out of, Harry muttered. So let's start with with step one, which is to piece this into the narrative. Like what's happening in the story here, Vanessa? So Harry is like taking care of Helena Ravenclaw, the gray lady. She is clearly ashamed of the fact that she told Voldemort about the lost item. And Harry is like, you're not the first person who this happened to. Let's move on from the shame and talk more about the facts, (laughs) ma'am. That's really interesting because I actually read it slightly differently. I don't know. His muttering suggests to me that maybe it's... Like he's making sense of things more than Mm. caring for. I'm sure he's doing that too. But the text tells us, well, you weren't the first person riddle worm things out of Harry Muttered. And then the next sentence is, he could be charming when he wanted dot, dot, dot. So you're right. Like he is, he is saying this for her benefit, but it feels like it's slightly to his own benefit as well. No, I think you're right. He spends so much of this chapter because Ron and Hermione aren't around muttering to himself (laughs) and figuring things out himself, right? right? He's like... 
Oh, everything that's alive, ghosts. Oh, nowhere that anyone could find it. Room of requirement, right? And I think so much of that muttering is like some sort of positive self-talk because Ron and Hermione aren't there to brainstorm with him. Right. And so it's ironic that like in this, you know, we've been advocating for Harry this whole time to just admit that he needs people. And then when he doesn't have those people, those very people have taught him the tools to do things on his own. So I, I love that you're pointing us to the word mutter. I think it's an important part of it. Yeah, I like that. Let's move to step two. So now we want to open our imaginative doors and think about what allegorical images, poems, sounds, stories, this little snippet of text reminds us of. Well, you weren't the first person Riddle wormed things out of, Harry muttered. I mean... I immediately thought of Eve in Adam and Eve. Oh. She is not the first person. And she gets, I mean, like we think of Voldemort as a snake and she gets like tricked by a snake. So I'm just seeing, I'm seeing Helena Ravenclaw's, I mean, she is Eve. She was in search of knowledge. So she takes the tiara. Whoa. And then Eve eats the apple from the tree of knowledge. She's Eve. Whoa. I mean, it's obviously different, right, that Helena takes sort of the apple diadem before a serpent is trying to trick her, whereas Eve gets tricked into craving the knowledge. But I even like that, right? Like Eve once fell. So it's not just an allegory. It's Eve fell thousands of years ago and we are post Eve. And so we are falling in derivative ways. Mm. But women's search for knowledge and men getting mad about it is still happening. <laughs> what about you, Casper? What what other stories came to mind for you? Honestly, the thing that stood out was was Riddle, like Tom's name. Just the way in which so many stories are dependent on like a riddle being solved, right? You think about the Sphinx, you think about these kind of borders that are crossed through someone's knowledge. And I guess that does connect actually with that Ravenclaw password idea of entering the common room. And so this this idea that maybe Helena becomes, I don't want to paint her in a way that she's just there to serve a plot point because she's much more than that. But just this idea that both Tom and now Harry have managed to persuade her to share this information. Like there is some sort of riddle that is being answered or some sort of, yeah, I, I'm interested in that. It just makes me wonder, Casper, if the only reason that she shares with Voldemort and Harry is that when she didn't give up the diadem, to the Bloody Baron, she got murdered. So, like, I don't know what you can do to a ghost, but I don't know. Does she do this because she wants to share it with Riddle or wants to share it with Harry or because the time in her life that somebody came to her demanding that she's learned a really big or else? Ooh, this sentence has a whole new weight to it. Let me read it once more. Well, you weren't the first person Riddle wormed things out of. Now I'm just thinking about the worm and your apple. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, worms, right, like remind you of death. Like mm -hmm. saying the word wormed to a ghost is interesting to me. Yeah. Reminds me of Medusa's hair. I don't know. There's something, something about the worms. And Medusa's interesting to say because that reminds me of how she takes on this kind of narrative function. Like she becomes the gray lady, right? She's not Helena anymore. She becomes, you know, the symbol of Ravenclaw, like an, a symbol of Hogwarts out in, in the world. Yeah, she's a whole different thing from the person that she was when she was alive. 
well, after that excitement, <laughs> let's move to step three and think about what in our own lives we're reminded of when we when we hear this phrase. Well, you weren't the first person Riddle wormed things out of, Harry muttered. So what it reminded me of is that my grandfather, who was just like incredibly sharp and with it very much well into his 90s, toward the end of his life got scammed, like in an elder care scam. And he got his money back that the FBI caught on. And one of the things that the FBI said was, it's not just him. He's not the first person to have been scammed in this exact scam, right? And how it didn't make me feel better. It just made me sad. And I think that there are times where that is a comfort, where it's like, well, I'm not the only person who got scammed in that way, or I'm not the only person who hit her head on that, you know, low post (laughs) or whatever, right? Like, it's not just me. But other times it it just makes me sad how the world can hurt so many of us. Mm. Mm. What about you? What did it remind you of in your life? Do you know, the thing that this is actually reminding me of is just the way in which my experience of communication this year, because of COVID and the many, many Zoom calls instead, has changed what kind of conversation I've been able to have. Like, I don't think Helena would have told Harry this through a Zoom call. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) It's hard to build trust over Zoom. Like, especially with a new relationship as this is, you get so much more of a sense of a human being when you're physically present. And I don't want to denigrate the amazing technologies that we have and like, thank goodness for it. And it's just qualitatively different. And so I'm I'm just thinking about this little muttering, right? This little aside that Harry has that actually communicates a lot in the moment. And I feel like in my life this year, I've, I've missed that extra 20% of communication that you get to experience when you're with people. So that's what I'm thinking of. Okay, Vanessa, let's move to our fourth and final step of Lectio, which is to think about, is there something that the text is inviting us to do? Is there an action that this piece of text calls us to? Well, you weren't the first person Riddle wormed things out of, Harry muttered. I never know with people if I should push them to share or not, or like respect their reticence. I don't know if people want me to be like, no, really, I'm here to listen, or if what they want is to just like keep it to themselves and keep quiet. Mm. I guess what I feel called to do is start asking, like, do you want to talk about this? Like, should I be pushing you on this? Or do you want me to just leave you alone? I just feel called to think about that more and more because, yeah, it's just a live question for me. You know, how to be a good person. Yeah, I'm really inspired by what you're saying, Vanessa, because often when I meet someone for the first time, I'm like part Barbara Walters, part like rattlesnake. And I'm just like all over everyone with like questions about their life and telling things about my life. And I'm like, "Mm, let's be, you know, like let's connect. And I have a certain way of doing that with some people that really work. And with other people, it just doesn't so much. And often if it doesn't, I'm like, okay, we're not a match. Like, fine. You know, you, you, you have your people. And I've been really wrong about that a couple of times recently where people that I didn't click with immediately ended up being people who I really appreciate as friends. And just the time it took to build that kind of intimacy and friendship was a different timeline from the one that I'm used to. And so I'm just I'm just thinking that the action I want to take away is to extend my timeline of that, like, are we friends? 
time, right? Where you're like, not sure yet before I'm like, yes or no. Yeah. I'm really inspired by what you're saying. Cause that, that feels super true for me as well. Well, thanks for a sacred reading with me, Vanessa. Thank you. <laughs> this week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimold Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week's voicemail is from Isabella, and we just want to offer a content warning, which is that Isabella talks about a gun-related event. And so if that is something that you would like to skip, please join us back at Blessings. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana, and the whole Harry Potter and the Sacred team. Um, I My name is Isabella. I am 14 years old, and... Recently, I went on a shopping trip with my grandmother and my um, cousins and mom. And at this place, we were about an hour into shopping at the mall, and someone screamed, he has a gun, run. And it was really scary. Uh, I just saw people start turning, and I ran as fast as I could. I saw some employees go out of their stores and run down the hallway. I ran with them. And I, once we got through into the parking lot, I just kept running and running and running. And the scariest part was I didn't know what happened to my mom or to my grandmother or my cousins or my aunts. And it was just very scary. Um, thankfully, no one was hurt. Uh, no one in my family was hurt. And I, my mom just kept screaming, Isabella, Isabella. And I finally found her. And it was just... It was horrible. I I don't know. The police say 
that no shots were fired, but me, my aunt, and my mom all confirmed that there were three shots. And, you know, out of like a thousand people that were in that little hallway going down that mall, I, I know other people heard it too. And I just wanted to say for Harry, I want to give him a blessing. Um, and Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, um, he's at the Triwizard Tournament and he sees Voldemort and Cedric dies. And I can't imagine seeing someone in my family die or a friend die and then still be in that fight or fight mode. Um, I just can't imagine. I, I think I'd give up. But I admire how he fights so fast. And I used to think, oh, like, if I was in that situation, I could not fight that fast. I could not run that fast. I could not think that clearly. But when you're in the situation, you just go. There's, there's nothing stopping you. And, yeah, I just want to give a blessing to him or anyone else who's been in a shooting or just a traumatic event where they have to get into that mode. And I just want to thank you guys for your amazing podcast. As soon as I got home from it, I turned on your guys' podcast and just drew. And I just want to thank you. And I hope you guys all have wonderful holidays. And thanks for the amazing podcast. Bye. Isabella, I'm, first of all, I'm just so sorry that that happened to you. And I can imagine just the, the horror and the fear that you and everyone there must have felt. So I'm so glad that everyone's okay, first of all. But I also want to say how lovely it is to hear that the podcast could be a place that you could come to and and just be with us as, as we chatted about Harry Potter and about life and you were making a beautiful drawing and just finding something for your mind to occupy itself with. And I know for a lot of listeners, especially people who re-listen to the show, shout out to all of you who've been through the series more than once. Just know that we love that you're listening to us and re-listening to these conversations. And you know, I'm really grateful that you're okay and enjoying everything there is. Happy holidays to you as well, if slightly belated. Isabella, I just want to echo, like, it just also sounds like you have a really wonderful self-care routine. Like this horribly traumatic thing happened to you. And the fact that you said, I turned on a podcast and started drawing. Like, that's just so wise. <laughs> and I just, it just sounds like you have some really healthy, wonderful coping mechanisms. And I just want to say how much I admire that. Casper, it's now time where we get to offer our blessings. And you know me, when in doubt, bless McGonagall. So... <laughs> I just want to bless her because she is going to be replaying this moment or these moments in her head for the rest of her life and wondering what she could have done better. A lot of children, a lot of her students are going to die, people she cares about. And she stepped into leadership when there was a vacuum of leadership. And so I just want to bless anybody who has to make tough decisions in difficult moments and then deal with the consequences. We all make a million decisions a day and we often are not in control of the outcomes that they have. And so I just want to bless everybody who feels as though the impact of their decisions has outpaced their ability to understand the intentions that they had behind them. And Minerva McGonagall, like this went much better because of her leadership than it would have done, you know, in the hands of just about anyone else. The problem is what's happening. The problem is not her. What about you, Casper? Who do you want to bless? I could copy that word for word because I, I want to bless Kingsley Shacklebolt. Ah! 
And it's in such a similar way. Mr. Weasley is talking to Harry and then suddenly the text tells us, but he broke off as Kingsley had stepped forwards on the raised platform to address those who, who had remained behind. And he starts essentially directing troops and creating little platoons and different jobs and, you know, places that need protecting. And he doesn't have a battle plan. You know, like people are showing up. He doesn't know who's there. Like it's a total hodgepodge, but he's making do. And I'm a huge admirer of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Congresswoman, and reading an interview with her relatively recently where she talked about really considering not returning to Congress because of the enormous professional and personal difficulties that it entails to be someone who is so visibly a leader and setting a vision and trying to do strategy and, you know, trying to build a coalition. And it just made me realize again how hard it is to step up and say, you know, follow me or let's do this, or this is the plan, or this is a plan. And so I just echo your blessing for McGonagall and I and want to give the same to, to Kingsley too. You have been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can find listeners who are discussing the episodes in the Facebook common room. You can leave us a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail and help us make our new podcast at patreon.com slash notsorrypod. Next week, we're reading the second half of chapter 31, the Battle of Hogwarts, again through the theme of survival. This episode was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Edelman. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we're distributed by Acast. Thanks to Isabella for this week's voicemail, to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, Stephanie Purcell, and Dr. Ali Bain for being our guest this week. Bye, everyone. Bye. I feel like middle names need upgrading. I'm honestly thinking about changing my middle name because it doesn't have a huge amount of meaning to me or anyone in my family. So I kind of want to change it to like Casper of the diadem to Kyle, right? Or like of the Albanian blessing tree to Kyle. I think you should be Casper Zoltan to Kyle to make our triple marriage official. The only way that would work is if it's Casper Zoltan to Kyle. (laughs) I mean, obviously. <laughs> just one big accent mark over my whole last name. Just just triple A. Zoltan. <laughs> <laughs>